This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Hello, everyone, and welcome to an episode of Pass the Mic. This is your producer, Bo York, stepping in really quick to let you know about the episode that you're about to listen to. When recorded, the guys ran into a little bit of difficulties. It was one of these uh, everything that possibly can go wrong, will go wrong situations. And so it's going to flow a little bit differently. Uh, for one thing, Jamar's going to pop up in the last 15 minutes of the episode as if he's always been there and just, just go with it. Just go with it. Cause honestly, it's a great discussion. We've got some wonderful guests on the show this week. Dr. Nicole Fulgham, who's the founder and president for the expectations project. Also Zakia Jackson, the director of partnership for the expectations project. It's a great discussion about education. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Again, our apologies for the technical difficulties as these things sometimes happen out of our hands. But we hope you enjoy this episode of Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, dynamic voices for a diverse church powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, as always, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. We got something special today. You guys work with the Expectations Project, and Nicole, you founded it. So can you give us a background of what the Expectations Project is and some of the goals that you guys have set forth? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And thanks again for for having us on. So I started this organization a few years ago because for me as a kid growing up, as an African-American kid growing up in Detroit, um, in a neighborhood that didn't have great schools, that inequality was something I saw, excuse me, as a kid. And saw my parents really struggle to figure out, you know, how do we find, you know, really good schools for myself and my brother. And the common theme was we ended up going to school outside of our neighborhood. So, you know, we were those kids who had to leave the block um, to go to a school across town or, you know, other options that my parents could afford and find for us. But, you know, as you get older, you realize, wait a minute, you know, the school I'm going to is pretty good, but the school that all my friends on the block are going to, we're just getting very different things. Um, and at the same time, I was, I grew up in the African Methodist Episcopal church, um, went to church every Sunday. And I saw so many examples of my church, not just talking about growing in your faith as a Christian, but putting your faith in action and working on justice issues, whether it was, you know, violence issues in our community or economic issues. Our church was a pretty large and influential um, congregation in the city. And, you know, leaders would come to our church, our pastors would hold them accountable, and they would push and, and see real change. Um, and that's exactly what we hope to see um, congregations do to get involved and in helping to improve schools. We have so much power in faith communities um, that we can really push our leadership to be accountable and to, to bring this, this type of systemic change that we think is necessary. And that's, that's what we do. We think there's just untapped power um, and congregations have a history of being involved in schools, but we think we can do more and, and do more to, to really improve the outcomes for, for all of God's kids. For me, teaching uh, public school in Compton was, was definitely a huge connecting point for me. There were so many ways that my kids needed additional support in our classroom. They needed extra time. They needed tutors. They needed 
we need supplies and resources in our community. And for me, the natural place to turn was my church family at the time um, in South Central LA. And those folks came and did so much with my classroom, welcomed by the families in my neighborhood, right? Just, you know, what, what else could they do? You know, let's meet for, to tutor a group of kids at the McDonald's on Saturday. They were just, they showed up. And so that stuck with me for sure. But then a few years you know, later, you know, sort of going out of the classroom and studying policy issues and what's really holding our kids back, I saw the same potential for, for Christians and people of faith to step into the systemic change space is what I would call it. And we started to see in our country over the last 10 or 15 years, different types of Christians who hadn't engaged on certain policy issues or certain systemic issues like climate change. You know, there are groups of Christians that had never touched that because it was sort of seen as a, you know, a liberal quote unquote progressive issue or whatever, or immigration reform, right? People that, you know, 10 or 15 years ago wouldn't be championing um, the rights of, of people that are migrating to our country. But then they were, and they were making very explicit choices to connect it to the Bible, in this case, as Christians, and to their faith and their understanding about theology. And what I saw I saw that, and I said, well, everyone's talking about these issues. Why aren't we talking about education in the same way? We need a national movement of people of faith who are going to say, this definitely connects to my convictions on biblical justice. It's about kids. It's about kids and helping them develop their potential. We need to be all in this we should be taking the lead and certainly you know congregations have been you know doing tutoring and mentoring for years right that's nothing new and some of us have been advocating but a lot of us have been absent and again just taking it back to my experience in Compton and seeing the real felt need that my church served there's again so much more we can do and i think it's a ripe opportunity for us to step in now zakia uh, help me understand, how did you get involved with the Expectations Project and and springboard off of that to give us a little bit of context to what Christians or what churches may fail to understand about the education system? Sure. You know, as, as you guys were wrapping up that last thought, I was thinking about how um, the public education is filled with people of faith, right? There are so many of us who are Christian or other denominations who integrate our faith into public education. Um, I remember when I was in my early 20s, I worked in an alternative school and I would go to school early um, in the morning sometimes and pray right over every desk <laughs> and pray for all of my students. Um, and so I think I think it's important for Christians to remember um, and the church to remember that public school is not void of people of faith, right? We might not be praying to start class that day, but we are there and we are praying and we care about students and we care about what's happening. And so I think uh, for, for me, coming to expectations was a really natural segue in my career. I started right out of school. Um, as a social worker, but working in public schools. Um, I then did after school enrichment and programs to help kids become first generation college students. I went on to do a few other things, but the first time I heard Nicole speak, maybe five years ago now, I was really struck by how she brought together faith and education and justice. Um, and I thought, yep. That's for me. I like that. <laughs> that's that's what I've been doing, and and that's something that really speaks to my heart. And and so now, as um, 
the director of partnerships, it really excites me to be able to help other people of faith connect those dots. Some of them already have and need help articulating them, and some of them haven't yet, but it's such a natural, um, it's something that's so natural and, and is so central to our faith. I think a lot of times we haven't thought about it, right? And, and a lot of times we haven't considered it. But, it, but it's so true that faith is very much a part of public education. So our mission is to help build the demand among faith communities to push for high quality public schools for all of God's kids, regardless of their race, family background, or income. And we do that through a couple of ways. We want to influence what's happening nationally, and then we also want people to be equipped and empowered to act locally. And most education decisions happen at the city level or the state level. Some are national, but most of them are state and local. But we know when you look at the history of, of movements and faith communities, and we don't, we don't sort of say we're a movement at this point. We would love to be a movement at some point. We're working on that. But, but when you look at, at what's happened, there's always been a national set of influencers, people that can speak truth to power at a very high level, a very visible level, that then will influence other faith communities locally to say, oh, that's right. You know, if Bishop so-and-so is talking about education inequality and he or she is this national figure, they're going to reach millions of people with that message. But then we want to make sure that we can equip and educate people to act locally where the real sort of rubber meets the road work has to happen. And so we do that by educating folks on a series of key issues. And I'll, you know, I can talk about what those are in a minute. Um, and then equipping them to take advocacy action on those, right? So helping people understand if one of our issues is early childhood education, making sure every kid has a quality preschool because it matters so much <laughs> that you get the right start before you get to kindergarten. We know a lot of our low-income families can't afford that. And so we then educate faith leaders in a community on the importance of that and everything from taking them to tours of what you know a great preschool looks like bringing in speakers, you know, we do a lot of co-investigative research together. So we're learning um, together because we want folks to feel empowered. But then we're also simultaneously equipping them so they can be prepared to go have that meeting with their state legislature, state legislator or governor's office, you know, giving them bully um, talking points for their bully pulpit on Sunday or Saturday morning so they can talk about the issue giving them opportunities to, you know, speak in front of the city council, school board, request meetings with the superintendent. But ultimately, the goal is to see real systemic change, right? So we want to see things like we saw in Indianapolis, where the governor, you know, after our engagement, along with other organizations, signed the first piece of legislation ever a couple of years ago to allow low-income families to access state funds for preschool. It had never happened before, right? And so now thousands of kids can go to preschool in part because of the work the clergy and again a lot of other people in the community in Indianapolis did but that's the type of change we're looking to see um, you know and that was a, a great example of it um, but we know that that's possible in a lot of other cities and states around the country that's the ultimate win for us is to see that kind of change that transforms the lives and gives more opportunity for kids and families but we also want to ensure that the leaders in um, in cities and states and ultimately nationally feel a sense of accountability to faith leaders, particularly faith leaders of color who are representing kids who have, as we know in our country, the biggest education disparities. Those decisions about what's happening in our local schools and districts should not be happening without the faith community, in particular leaders of color, 
having a large voice at the table and they should feel that sense of accountability from the work we're doing. But even when you look at the candidates' platforms, you know, I would say some of the things that are missing are the ability to have a deeper conversation and sort of deeper dive on policy. And certainly, you know, depending on whose platform you're looking at, there's going to be policy statements there and some, you know, go more in depth than others. But I feel like we are hearing the soundbite discussion in the media from from both candidates. You know, I'm pro-charter, I'm against charter, repeal Common Core, you know, teachers need raises. And those are all things that, you know, are debatable um, depending on sort of how you want to pursue it. But it, it doesn't feel like we've gotten to any depth of saying not just are you pro or con charter, but what does a good school look like and how am I going to ensure that more kids in our country have quality schools? That's a complex question, right? There isn't a silver bullet, as you know, anyone who's worked in education knows. And you know, without that deeper discussion, I, one, I don't feel we're going to get anywhere potentially, right, on education issues, whomever the, the leader is. But secondly, um, it... it minimizes the issue as, you know, people can sort of walk away from this saying, oh, well, here's the one thing we have to do for quote unquote inner cities is to give them more charter schools. And I think anyone, even someone working at a charter school would say, that's not at all (laughs) what they would suggest is necessary to ensure that, you know, millions of more kids have a quality school. There's just so much more to it than that. Um, so that's one thing I would say. What I, what I have liked, um, in terms of the, the push and the discussion, and again, not from, from all candidates, but from some on the connections of racial justice to schooling and trying to stem the, the preschool to prison pipeline, as it's called. I mean, there are just real connecting points. And again, I, I attribute that largely, honestly, to the movement, um, to the Black Lives Matter movement and others that are pushing that conversation. And I think it's forced some leaders in the presidential uh, election cycle to have to make those connections and to be much more forthright about it um, than they would have been, I would say, a couple of years ago. And it's on all of us after the election to hold them accountable to. I would I would add something into that as well. To Nicole's larger point, I think it reminds me of how important it is to look at the rest of the ballot, right? Like yes, know yes. who's on the oh, rest goodness. of the ballot before you go vote. Um, research those people, see where they stand on education. Um, ch- you know, you might have more access to them as well at a local level. There are going to be a lot more names on the ballot and a lot more positions than president of the United States. And so I think as our due diligence, we need to pay attention to that. That is such, that right. is such Absolutely. a good point, Sakia, because there are school board elections happening the same day that presidential elections happening yes. in a couple of weeks. Yes. and. People generally, you know, the response rate to those elections tends to be lower. And people, to your point, just tend to not even know like, who the folks are, now, what they even stand for. Now, Zakia, it's, it's interesting because recently I was actually watching a video. I think it went viral, mini viral in my circle of friends where a pastor in a particular city was at a school board meeting. And he was basically taking the school board to task for allowing the students of a particular high school in, I think, a lower income area. I don't know all the, the specifics, but in a lower income area to go to school with asbestos and black mold and there were gas leaks. And, and it really convicted me because I, I, 
I looked around and said, you know, there's a school not too far from me. And how am I getting involved in that school other than just, you know, coming by occasionally? But how am I actually seeing their conditions and and the specifics? And so far, I think for a lot of Christians, it may be a bit overwhelming to think through how to practically get involved outside of just voting. What would be your advice to Christians who are saying, well, I want to do something, I want to make an impact uh, what, how, how should they go about doing that? Yeah. You know, I think, um, the overwhelmed feeling is something that many of us can relate to. It's, it's really natural, but I really think we have to, um, divest ourselves of this idea that we're going to save everything tomorrow. That's good. We, we wow. have to have a sense of urgency about it because it is a very urgent, urgent thing, the education of all God's children, right, of our black and brown kids. But if we're rather detached from our local school system and we feel the urgency, we're not going to save it tomorrow. We have to get involved with a more long-term sense of how change is going to come about. Right. Um, and so I, I think one, orienting our thoughts and, and the way we look at things is really um, important. And then I think you have to begin by educating yourself on your local system and, and getting to know people who are directly impacted by the local system. So, for example, if there's a school, a local school, but your kids don't go to that school, but you want to know about that school, then it is it would be good to get to know some of your neighbors whose kids go to that right. school, right? And at the same time, trying to be informed, trying to inform yourself through reading and and, and other things like that. Nicole, would you would you add something different to that? I know. I think that's a great comprehensive list. I think it's perfect. Now, kind of building off of that, you guys have had the opportunity to connect with kind of movers and shakers in the Christian worlds and Christian industry. And um, you've had the opportunity to connect with uh, prominent artists. And how have you seen that that those artists and the people in higher places are responding to what you're doing? Is there a place of acceptance and is there a place of understanding? Is there any uh, pushback that you're getting um, or a cold shoulder? How, how's What's the climate like around an issue like education and justice? Well, I'll jump in and Zuki, I definitely would love your thoughts on this since this is the work that you lead. You know, I would say the people that we are partnering with and have been able to make connections with are folks that are pretty predisposed, a lot of them, to working on justice issues. You know, so you want to pick the to some extent, pick the folks that you know are ready to, to jump in, and which has been exciting. And I think they have made a lot of connections to other issues they care about, whether it's you know social issues around girls and women, or as I said earlier, um, juvenile justice issues, or or other other topics. And so that has been really encouraging for us. And we certainly have been welcomed into a lot of places and to talk about education issues. I think there are definitely still people for whom this is not a blip on their radar screen yet, right? And so it's one of these things where everybody, if you ask people, and we've done our own public polling with a couple of research firms, polling the Christian community in particular, and pretty much everyone recognizes that there is a problem in our country. If you ask them, do public schools need to improve? What do you think about urban schools? 
from all backgrounds, people are like, oh my gosh, yes, and the church should be doing more. But when you get down to the level of, do you really understand the nuance there? Whose fault do you think it is? And we still hear from from folks, not, not our partners in particular, but just out there when I give talks um, on sort of a larger stage, you know, well, isn't it the parents cared more? Wouldn't that be part of the problem? Right. And you, you, you hear that. Right. And I think that's just honestly, lack of understanding our own biases and all of that coming into play. Um, But what I would say is that, again, people get that there's an issue. They have different opinions about why it's an issue. And also, I don't think, you know, it's not in like the top three issues. I would say that Christians are talking about it doesn't get the same kind of play. Um, And I see that honestly, um, when, when I think about, um, you know, sort of from a, we're nonprofit, so we're constantly talking to people for, you know, potential donors and financial support. And there are groups of the Christian um, sort of philanthropic community that this just hasn't even gotten to the level of something that they realize, oh, there's a real need here. Like even like you could call like a mission need. And I mean, mission in the like best possible sense. Um, But, but it's just not, it it hasn't gotten there to that, to that level yet. Um, So we we definitely have a lot of work to do. I'd love your thoughts as well. Yeah, I think that's all. Um, that's all right. I, w- I would say most of the artists we've worked with have come with a base of knowledge, but also a humility um, and, and a desire to learn more. I think uh, there, there's, this, there's this desire to, what I keep hearing is to do something that is helpful and impactful right now, right? A, a lot of them care about... Um, the movement, so to speak, and, and what they, we've seen happening and the unarmed killing of African-Americans. And that, I think, sometimes seems so far away. Like, it's so hard to insert ourselves into that. And, and some of them are seeing education as a place where they can uh, immediately educate and help their fans, in particular, get the issue better and get involved. So so that for me has been a, a good thing and an encouragement. And I've also seen that they are connecting the dots between education being really heavily related to all of these other issues that we're dealing with, um, particularly as African-Americans in yes. the U.S., very related to mass incarceration, very uh, related to economic injustice, they're related even to um, housing discrimination and, and other things. Um, so there's an enthusiasm to want to to address all of these issues at the same time, in part through a more just education system. At the end of the day, Christian families are going to make their own choices about where they want to send their kids. If you want to homeschool your child, send them to a Christian school, a private school, by all means, that is your choice and, and, and right to do so. We just feel in the same way that, that the Bible talks about us being, are we not our brother's keeper? Do we not have some obligation to those who are the most disenfranchised? That's what's happening in our schools, right? So you know, regardless of what your personal opinion is on, on schools or where to send your kid, the vast majority of kids, especially kids that are black and brown, and, and from low-income communities, they are in our public schools, full stop. So that's not so that's not changing, right, excuse me, anytime soon. And so what's our obligation then to, to work in those communities um, to help support and improve 
and come alongside the families who do have no other choices. That's, that's the only choice they have, right? So that's practical. And then from a theological perspective, which is similar to what I said, I suppose, is there is a biblical responsibility um, that we have. In the same way that I hear people pushing back on getting involved in public schools, I've challenged people and said, so are you sending money to help eliminate sex trafficking somewhere else in the mm. world? Are you working on you know, food insecurity issues in sub-Saharan Africa? Oh, you are. So you're not there. Like you could easily make the same argument. Gosh, if those parents in sub-Saharan Africa just worked harder, wow. like they could get more food for their kids. So why is it okay to think about that as a Christian obligation, but somehow we turn our eyes to look in our own backyard? Is it because it's too close to you? And you're like, oh, well, shoot, if I acknowledge the inequality that's happening 20 miles away, I might be benefiting from that myself. So I don't want to talk mm. about that. It's oh, this man. very interesting dynamic. And so that's generally where I take it. And as you might imagine, sometimes those conversations end kind of abruptly. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I, I just feel like that's that's truth. And if someone's going to ask that question, I feel very comfortable giving them an honest answer. Yeah, I think I'll add to that, too, if that's OK. Um, I think that I try to very graciously, but but honestly, kind of just provide receipts for how uh, to be done. Get that in right. Yes. The receipt ministry, the ministry of receipts. The receipt, yeah. ministry, the receipt <laughs> ministry. So I, in my education as a child, was homeschooled, went to private school and went to public school. And I, my family stopped sending me and my siblings to private school because it was so racist. And it wasn't. Wow. And it was a Christian private school, um, and they wouldn't educate or treat me and my siblings fairly, right? So my mom said, okay, we're not going to do that. And she homeschooled us for a little while. And then we eventually, some of us ended up in public school, and our public school was fantastic. It was, in many ways, really, really good. Not, not without prejudice there either, um, but I think we have to push other believers to, uh, to really look at what they're saying, you know, and, and what it means to educate any child well, right? Uh, and, and so I, I bring that, but then I also have to go back to, it is so disrespectful to describe public schools as places that are void of Christ, because there are so many believers there. There are so yes. many people who, as we mentioned early in the show, are living out their calling. So if your calling is to work in a private Christian school, that's fine. That's that's great. You, you've got to live your calling, but we can't um, ostracize others who are in different places as not being called to the Lord's work, because it is the Lord's work to be in public schools. Actually, I was on um, Facebook, of course, with a bunch of friends, and one of my African-American girlfriends posted, she was like, why don't we have, you know, a, like an African-American like weekend school experience for kids? And I was like, oh, that's genius. Cause I have friends that are Chinese American or Korean American, Jewish, you know, Jewish folks. They have, you know, Saturday school where they spend all day learning about their culture and heritage. I was like, oh, we don't have that. Do we like, we have the black church and we have other wow. opportunities because you're exactly right. Like we oftentimes have to, almost all the time have to make that decision. And I've just found that, you know, we are open to what all of our kids need at any particular moment and figuring out when racial identity is going to become more of an issue, right? I mean, it's always an issue, but when is it going to become 
so so tight and so tense in a particular space like Zakiv was experiencing where it's just time to move, right? And so for us, we I would love to think we could find all of that in a school and still get the academics we need. And I think there are those those magical unicorn places where it's happening. I honestly went to a school like that in Detroit, um, which was just amazing. I'm so grateful for it. But for for me personally, as a parent, we you know have our own curriculum, as we call it, for our black black daughter who's the youngest still at home. And that's just we we think about putting that into operation in a lot of ways in our collective village, in what we learn, what we read, what we study at home. And I think beyond that, though, it is incumbent upon all of us who are in education spaces doing this work to push for that in our schools, like full stop. And even if your child is in a school where it's predominantly um, African-American kids, if the school is does not have that philosophy, you know, just being around black kids isn't going to necessarily make you feel <laughs> and sort of learn the things you're supposed to learn and feel empowered, particularly if the school is being run by people who don't have that orientation. And we see that popping up in our cities all the time where they may be knocking out the academics and all the kids are going to college. And don't get me wrong, I want that right for our kids, for sure. But I don't want it to come at a cost of them sacrificing who they are, not getting to learn, learn about who they are, right? That matters for our communities too. And in the in the flip side, when a school is less diverse, our voices need to be there, right? Like we, right. we my child's school knows me. I'll just, I'll just put it that way. They know me. Absolutely. <laughs> they, they know I will be up there. Um, and we've seen that, you know, in our community, we've seen parents of color organize around very particular issues when they were being marginalized and it's beautiful to mm. behold. And we have absolutely have to do that. I think now, go ahead, go ahead. Zika. Yeah. Just quickly add, I don't have kids yet. I'm like super auntie, um, <laughs> to my <laughs> many nieces and nephews <laughs> and my friends, kids, but I would also encourage parents to include their village in educating their children in that way. I'm the auntie that always gives books with pictures of black kids, right? And with stories about black kids doing things and even action figures of black scientists Mm. and, you know, all of these things. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We need some good recommendations. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I just think, I think um, Esperanza Spaulding has a song called Black Gold. And in the video, it's a father walking home with his sons, asking them what they did in school school today and they're talking about what they learned about Africa and the dad says that's all you learn (laughs) (laughs) and then he talks about when we get home we're going to pull out my history books and I'm going to tell you about Africa and so I think to to go off Nicole's point we have to make our own curriculum and and enhance curriculum a lot of times um, to to educate our kids well absolutely now Man, this has been so much great information. I, I have to, though, bring up something that happened uh, very publicly that featured the Expectations Project recently. And that's, as as many people know, the Dove Awards happened um, a couple of weeks ago. And one of the Dove Award winners is someone who worked with the Expectation Project very closely and someone who I'm a big fan of, and that's Kirk Franklin, a gospel music legend and a, a number of different things in the Christian world, but a very recognized name. And he was recently on the Tom Joyner Morning Show, and he talked about maybe the editing and the erasing um, of the Expectation Project appeal that he gave in the in the televised broadcast. So 
I just wanted to hear what you guys, uh, what your reaction was and how did that make you feel and kind of what happened from your perspective, because I was very interested and uh, shocked to hear his uh, admission and how, frankly, as in his words, embarrassed he was for the church. Yeah, it was definitely a, a powerful moment for all of us involved, I would say. And, you know, we are so, we were so grateful, certainly to have Kirk Franklin and his team and others supporting this work. They have just been a blessing and just truly committed to, to education and equality issues. And so the Dove Awards, as folks know, is, you know, there are a couple of, sort of quote unquote Christian Grammys, the Stellar Awards is one and the Dove Awards is the other. And it's a, it's a great platform. Any chance you have to talk about an issue that, that has a social connection and a social justice cause, you take it if it's the Dove Awards, right? And so the staff and the leadership team at the Dove Awards has been and continues to be phenomenal. Cannot say enough about that. They were so fired up um, to, to have us uh, partner with them and, and support our work and are continuing to do so. And we are, we're super grateful for that. And so we prepared for this, um, for this wonderful opportunity to get, you know, hopefully in front of the Dove Awards, but then also the broadcast of the Dove Awards, which uh, is broadcast on TBN, Trinity, Trinity Broadcast Network, which literally reaches millions of people, um, tens of millions of people around the country. And so when, when that opportunity came up, as I said, you know, we were incredibly excited about it. Um, but the, the, the challenge happened from, from what we can tell, and again, we weren't in the, the room to hear all the conversations, came from between the Dove Awards and um, the Trinity Broadcast Network. You know, they certainly have final final rights to edit um, and include what they want. And when the show was going to be broadcast, we found out uh, a couple of days before that we weren't going to be, unfortunately, a part of it. Um, the segment that we recorded with Kirk Franklin um, and ourselves was, uh, was eliminated from that. And I'd say that the broader theme for us is that it wasn't just that our piece, which was, from our perspective, pretty pretty innocuous, right? It was, we were simply stating the facts of education inequality, that it does fall along the lines of race and class in our country, um, that Christians should feel a moral obligation to step in and do something. If you want to help, you know, text the word hope to 44144 and we will follow up to help you help. <laughs> and so that's one piece, which again, seemed pretty innocuous. Um, but the other piece was that, um, and this is what Kirk talked a lot about on Tom Joyner, is that uh, part of his speech his acceptance speech for winning Gospel Artist of the Year was cut. And his speech, and Zakia, I love your thoughts, was probably the most iconic moment of the night. Like there was a standing ovation, as, as Kirk Franklin said, through a predominantly with a predominantly white audience, right, in the in the actual award show, because he spoke very directly about um, racial injustice in a very like open, inviting, like humbling way. And you can check out his um his speech on the, the Dove Awards Facebook page, they, they actually put it on there and it's been, been viewed tens of thousands of times. And so those two things combined for us, honestly, just made it a bigger, a bigger issue because it's not just, oh gosh, we didn't get our time on the show. It's wait a minute. Is it not okay to talk about race issues and policing issues with a predominantly white Christian audience? And that to me, honestly, was the more heartbreaking piece that, you know, of all places where we should be able to talk about injustice, it should be among Christians that we shouldn't be afraid to talk about what's really happening. And talking about it doesn't, and hearing about it doesn't make you racist, right? Like, I don't know how we can, I almost feel like that's what people feel like, oh, it makes me uncomfortable. Well, you know what? We should be uncomfortable because it's happening. 
And we can't ignore it. And part of the reason we have these problems in our country and in the church, by the way, is because we are choosing to ignore it and not talk about it. And so, again, we weren't in the room when all of the actual decisions were made. We just know that it wasn't included. And that was was disappointing for us. So, Kia, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I would just say, again, to Nicole's point, Kirk was so gentle and pastoral, right? Yes, he was. He was. So gentle and pastoral. And our video was not aggressive by any means. No one said white privilege. No one said white supremacy. (laughs) It was so gentle. So that leaves the conclusion being we just can't acknowledge race at all. Is that really like mm. we can't acknowledge and pray for race and the like the the he Kirk prayed for healing. We yes, can't he pray for healing. Whoa, like I don't. Wow. So I you know I think that's that's part of my response and and just part of the discouragement piece of it. Because um, if we can't start with praying for healing, that 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 just makes us sound and it, it makes us look very lost, to be quite frank. Yeah, now we're so. not even connected with what's happening, right? Like this is happening right. in our country. Are we just sticking our head in the sand and we just want to pretend like it's not? Because it, it's happening. Everyone's talking about it. So why are, why are we afraid to talk about it? Too? Um, uh, exactly. And, and this is why I think education in particular is an area where Christians need to pay close, close attention and have tons of, of, of action and energy around because it brings together so many of the justice issues that we're talking about, um, whether it's the so-called school-to-prison pipeline, whether it's um, system- issues of systemic poverty, um, whether it's residential segregation, all of those things show up in the classroom every single day, whether through the kids or their parents or the, the community where the school is located. And again, we, we're, we're often in, uh, Tyler and I, in circles that are predominantly white and Christian. And there seems to be this reticence around uh, public education. But as you, as, as you all are, are indicating, it's actually, I think, indicative of a bigger sort of angst and uncomfortability um, that's often on the part of the majority to address these issues because, I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons, but one of them is because it, it, it reflects on our lifestyles. Um, these are things that uh, either we're benefiting from the system, um, and so to disrupt it would, would, would really <laughs> disrupt our lives personally. And, and that's no shade. It's, it's difficult. Um, for anybody to take that step, but we have to do it. And I'm just like, I feel like I'm screaming at a wall to say not only to white folks, but, but to black and brown folks, like get involved in education, become teachers, be supportive, whatever it is. Uh, there are so many ways that if we are burdened about social justice, uh, justice in any sense, that you can approach it from an education perspective. So that's more of a comment right. than a question. Tyler, yeah. you have a question. No, I was just going to say, uh, no, I was actually going to piggyback off of what you said, just particularly because we're very difficult, I think, on reform circles. But um, I don't know if this is the best place to admit this, but as having been probably the only person in this group that's actually been on TBN, 
Um, those, those are kind of my people. Uh, and, you know, on the local and the regional level, um, was interviewed on TBN and had a show that aired on TBN and stuff. So having been on that level, it was particularly disheartening for me because what I've seen is that it's not just from our white brothers and sisters who are attempting to silence this conversation, but it's also from people of color um, who are Christians or who are spiritual leaders. So it was particularly disheartening for that reason, um, knowing that behind the scenes, there's a mixture of people and probably a diverse group of people who are making these decisions. So it is definitely something that we could extend time and talk about, but I, I just... It was it was heartbreaking for that reason. I know we're 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 on the reformed African American network, so we we're typically tough on reformed people, but um, in that area and their acceptance or non acceptance. But I think it's a it's a global church problem. It is. It is. Let's let's talk about um, actual steps, right? There, there. You've you've already mentioned some of them, but let's say we're getting to the end of the podcast. Somebody, you know here's Tyler's beautiful voice, do the outro. <laughs> and then they're asking, now Thanks what? You <laughs> you. Send you $20 later. <laughs> hey, every little bit counts. I'm going to Sonic. No. Um, uh, so then what? Like immediately, I, I, I stopped listening to this podcast. What next? Um, and both of you can weigh in on this. So there are two things you can do immediately. One, you can go to expectations.org and click on the link to sign up for our email distribution list. And there we can start to provide you with resources and equip you with information that can help you do something tomorrow in your community, right? And the second thing, which is honestly kind of similar to the first, is if you want to just pick up your cell phone and text the word HOPE, H-O-P-E, to 44144, same thing. We'll be able to connect with you and give you resources of things you can do, right? So that's just from a, if you want to do something now, we want to be able to equip you um, as people of faith to take action. In the the broader sense, you know, we're asking people to do a couple of things. Um, we ask, ask people to start praying, right? Praying for our students, our families, our teachers, our communities, and also praying about what God would want you to do, right? That's one thing. And then secondly, educate yourself. There are lots of resources, again, on our website and others that you can, you know, read about education issues in your local community, read about sort of how we do our work more broadly as an organization. But there are, there are things that you can learn so you can start to bring awareness, not just about the scope of the problem. We try to balance that with, and here are the things that we know actually work. Because we can talk forever about the inequalities, which are real, but if you don't believe that it can be solved and can be changed then how are you going to bring hope and light <laughs> to the world and to our communities as mm. yourself being a reflection of that? You have to have a sense that things can be changed. And so those are the places where we encourage people to start. Again, we want to equip you and resource you and take you through a process to help you get involved locally. But you can also start by praying and educating yourself where you are. So Kia, what would you add? Yeah, that was great. You know, the, the only thing that I think I would add is if you don't, believe that education is a civil rights issue. I would challenge you to listen to some voices that are different than yours. Um, I think I, I say that for any um, person of faith that's listening, but I would especially challenge our African-American brothers and sisters on that piece. Um, because if you don't believe that it's a civil rights issue, then, then my question for you is, are you ascribing to respectability politics? Do you Whoa. think we should all just oh, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps? 
um, and have you reckoned with um, system inequality? That's what I would add. Wow. That is... <laughs> what? Tyler. Wow. This has been ready, bro. Listen, this has, been one of, this has been one of the most enjoyable interviews we've ever done by far. Um, we've learned so much and... We just want to have you guys back as soon as possible. Um, yeah, so. we want to support y'all however we yes. can. So uh, let us know and definitely go to expectationproject.org so folks can get informed. But look, consider us uh, allies in what you're yes. doing. And me personally, having been in education for so long on both sides of the desk, um, uh, definitely love the work y'all are doing. Thank you so, so much for your wisdom and your perseverance and your faith in all this. Thank you so much for letting us come on and share. We really appreciate you both. And Thank yeah. you so much, guys. It was our pleasure. Well, as always, we want to invite you guys to like us on Facebook at Rand Network. We also want to encourage you to join the Pass the Mic Facebook group. That's a private Facebook group, um, cross-denominational, cross-generational um, cross-cultural lines of people um, who are who are coming together and working through theology and justice in a civil, respectful Facebook forum. It's my favorite part of Facebook, and I, I guarantee you, you'll like it as well. So go and, and invite yourself into the Pastor Mike Facebook group. We also want to invite you guys to follow us on Twitter. Um, you can follow the podcast at underscore Pastor Mike or the website at Rand Network. Obviously, randnetwork.org is our hub, so there's a number of different things that are going on there. From articles to discussions to resources, check that out at your earliest convenience. We also want you to rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, that gives us more publicity, gets our uh, the, the past the mic agenda and the, the idea of reconciliation and justice out there. Uh, you can also subscribe to us on the Satchel podcast app where you can donate as little as just a dollar um, to the cause. This is not free. So if you want to support us financially, you can do that. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We look forward to seeing you soon on the next Pass the Mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y.com. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.